Welcome to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast, a podcast intended not just for parents or caregivers, but individuals seeking guidance around challenging behaviors or recurring and negative patterns in your life. Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast aims to have you asking, who am I parenting here, my child or myself? This podcast has a vision of you, the adult, stumbling upon a new relationship with the child you once were. Parenting is no easy task, but it doesn't have to be a burden. We are happy you are here. Welcome to episode 19 of Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. Today I have what I think is another candid therapist chat. I have one of those on my website already. I think it's uh, episode 15. And today I'm chatting with a therapist from Chicago. And I think she's the second therapist that I've chatted from that area, which I don't know, is just kind of fun. Her name is Alicia Bradley, and she received her BA in psychology in 2006 from Satan Hill University in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. She then went to the Illinois School of Professional Psychology and received her master's in clinical psychology in 2009. She started working in the mental health field in 2007 as a mental health counselor and at a residential facility for adolescent females. She began working as a therapist once receiving her master's, and since that time, she's worked in residential facilities, psychiatric hospital, outpatient clinic, and private practice. She's also been an administrator in a clinic and residential treatment facility for children and adolescents, and is currently working as a private practice therapist, as well as teaching psychology at a college in Chicago. And... The reason why I thought this would be another candid therapist chat uh, for you all is because we talked about a lot of stuff today. And some of those topics we talked about were the work that Alicia does around uh, foster and adoptive parent support. So she discusses the areas that these families have specific challenges with. And uh, she does do online work as well. And she provides regular support and teaching skills uh, for that population. And Alicia always also shared with me how, and we had a little, like I said, candid chat therapist to therapist about why, myself included, we don't feel online therapy is best for children. Um, I do online therapy as well. And I really, I mean, if I've met the 16 or 17 year old in person in my office, I may consider doing online therapy with them. Uh, And just for those of you who are wondering, what the heck is online therapy? Um, It's kind of like Skype, but I, we have to use a, um, in Canada, we call it PHIPAA. So it's a privacy um, policy, essentially, that we have to adhere to because 
of the topics and the privacy concerns around mental health. And so I use an app that is encrypted on both ends. So it's like Skype, just everyone knows Skype and how that works or FaceTime, but it is encrypted end to end. And so I have to pay a monthly subscription fee in order to have that service. And for me, it actually also processes all my payments and uh, provides appointment uh, updates and reminders to my clients. But uh, anyhow, so we were we were just chatting back and forth, uh, Alicia and I, about how um, there's just some things that you have to be able to do in office with kids and uh, be able to provide an in-office space for them that... Um, you know, just sitting and talking to a computer screen is is not as effective. Uh, adults can make it work, but kids not so much, and that's okay. And we also talked about um, for the families who are adopting, how understanding the lack of or even knowing family of origin details more specifically for the child or youth that you're adopting, any negative impacts or experiences and how, although you may have the best of intentions with your child, this can still very much impact you, especially if there's some sort of mental illness that starts to come through as the child ages and knowing when to seek help uh, around the challenges. Alicia speaks about why some families hesitate to seek help thinking things like they've failed as a parent. And I mean, that's pretty common all around the parent guilt. <laughs> and so she goes into that. She also speaks about some other work that she does, and that's an aftercare type program. So when a young adult ages out of the system, meaning maybe they've been in, um, I'm trying to think of what they would call it in the States, but here in Canada, they age out of the, uh, they call it like family and children's services or children's aid. It's essentially, um, they be, some kids become crown wards of the state. And uh, so they age out of that system. And I think Alicia talks about it being 21 years old in Chicago. And I believe it's the same here in Ontario, Canada. And so she talks about how and what, some of the struggles are that these individuals have, uh, which is kind of interesting. She also talks about uh, DBT or dialectical behavior, and that is a form of therapy that she does. And it's really specifically around those who have interpersonal difficulties in their relationships. And so there are four main parts to that um, therapy. I'm not, I mean, I have a very basic knowledge and understanding of that. I have a workbook in my office that is found on DBT principles that is very effective and that I do with my clients, but uh, I don't offer that I do DBT therapy because there's a whole like certification process that, uh, that one can go through. But essentially uh, the four main areas for doing that work is uh, mindfulness emotional regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. And how something like emotional flooding, when that comes at you as an individual, DBT can really help to teach you how to manage those emotions and learn skills to get through those emotions. 
And then we touched just really briefly at the end about oppositional defiance disorder. And um, I mentioned this in past podcasts. We as master level clinicians in Ontario, Canada are not permitted to diagnose or provide a diagnosis for mental health. That must be done through a doctor and that can be a psychiatrist, it can be a psychologist. And so Alicia just kind of gives a bit of insight about how it works down there, but that's not the case in Ontario, Canada. And depending on where you're from, it may not be the case for you. And so um, we didn't get into too big a discussion, but there can be implications about having a diagnosis. I think she mentions that she has to diagnose on the first visit, which that kind of scares me a little bit, but <laughs> I definitely, I mean, I don't have the skills or qualifications to be able to diagnose, but I don't know if I'd feel comfortable diagnosing after one visit. But anyways, um, so she talks about how uh, it's important in this area of oppositional defiance disorder or uh, ODD as it's known to offer a lot of parent support and work because parents and working or not working, but parents living with children who have ODD tendencies or has been diagnosed with ODD, um, they're tired. It's it's a, a constant power struggle and it can be really, really exhausting. So like I said, another candid therapist chat that I hope that you'll all enjoy. Sorry, sorry for the long-winded uh, introduction and I hope that you enjoy this one. And one last thing before we go or before I let you go, uh, Pat, my tech guy, has added a link directly on my website or parentingwhopodcast.com. There is a link there for iTunes, and we're asking for people to take some time to click on that link and provide some comments, feedback, questions, queries, critiques, what have you about the podcast so that we can find out what other topics you're interested in and also how we can make it better for you. And uh, like I said, I hope you enjoy episode 19. Hi, Alicia. This is Julie, and welcome to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. Hi, thank you. And so for those of you listening, my guest today is Alicia Bradley, and Alicia comes from Chicago, Illinois. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor, and I wondered, Alicia, if you could tell me and the listeners a little bit about you and how you came to the helping profession. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think what made me get into the profession is really something that I was interested in at a very young age, um, primarily with children and trying to, you know, assist children that were in difficult situations. So it was something I knew I wanted to do, um, I would say, from high school, if not even earlier than that. Um, so I went on and I got my, my master's degree in um, clinical psychology. And as you mentioned, I have my LCPC license here in the state of Illinois. And I've been working um, with my license for about 10 years or so. And within those 10 years, I've done a lot of different things. I've worked um, in a lot of residential facilities with um, children and adolescents and a lot of um, children and adolescents who have come from difficult backgrounds of some kind of abuse or neglect or um, severe mental illness. I've also worked inpatient at a psychiatric hospital. And now I am in um, private practice. 
you and I have so much in common. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's so interesting. Well, firstly, I'll back up. There's, I ask a lot of the clinicians that I do the podcast with how they came about into the helping profession. And it's so interesting how at a fairly young age, myself included, we all had an idea that this is something that we wanted to do. So it's, it's kind of neat in, I, this is going to be episode 19 for my podcast. So it's kind of neat as I continue to, to grow this podcast to hear themes and how we all sort of came about in doing this. And bachelor's degree is child and youth care. And so I have, I haven't worked in residential treatment, but definitely worked with some of the other things that you talk about, the abuse, the neglect, severe mental illness. I as well have worked in an inpatient hospital, psychiatric uh, area, as well as with eating disorders. And then I'm in private practice as well. So we have a similar okay. path. Yeah, which yeah. is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm, you know, like when people ask me that question about how or why I got into it, it's not a specific event that I can necessarily point to. But like you said, it was kind of something that you just knew. Um, and then for me at a young age, it was more like, okay, what do I need to do? What education do I need to get to be able to to do that? So, So mm -hmm. that's kind of where it started for me. Yeah. And I knew, like, I knew I wanted to work with kids, but I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher because I wanted to work with the student that was in the back of the class that was struggling. And right. I knew as a, right. And I knew <laughs> as a teacher that I wouldn't have the time, the ability or, you know, the training to do that. And so uh, as much as I admire and respect what teachers do, I just knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be more that helper. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you also work in, you have experience working with, so child welfare, working with foster parents and or post-adoption issues. And I wondered if you would speak a little bit to some of those things and the work that you do in those areas. Yeah. You know, um, I think working with foster parents or parents who have adopted a child is really important and um, something that can be really challenging for those parents because unfortunately a lot of times those children come in with already having experienced some kind of trauma um, or some kind of difficult past experiences and a lot of times the parents aren't equipped or they don't know um, some of the struggles that the child may have. So when I work with, with those individuals, I really try to um, make it about, of course, working with the child, but more so working with the parents mm -hmm. to, to help them feel like they have tools to be able to manage what's going on and, and to help them understand, um, you know, sort of where this stuff is coming from. And also, you know, it, like I said, it's great to be able to work with the child. And, and I, I kind of do 50-50 with the child and with the parents. But it's in the office, it's one thing. And then when you get out into the world, it's, it's a different thing. So I think it's really important for the parents to feel like they have um, the ability to manage any difficulties that come up after they leave the session. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I realized that we didn't talk about the online work that you do. And it's interesting because I also do online work. And because of my training, and it very much focused on working in the life space of the child, even in private practice, it's a bit of a stretch in terms of, you know, I'm not going directly into the child's home or mm -hmm. into the school most times. Sometimes I am. 
And so for the online medium, that is what I have decided that I'm not going to work with. And I'm interested and curious about what your thoughts are on this or how you, uh, how your practice is set up, but I had decided that I wouldn't work online with those who are 16 and under. Mm-hmm. And even at 16, 17, I would likely, I would want to see them in my office, I think first, just to kind of assess and see where they were at and see if that was a good, if the online medium was a good place for them. But I definitely do parent consultations online and it's very advantageous for busy schedules and, and right. all of those kinds of things. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the work that you do with the child like do you do work online with the child um you know I actually have mine set up kind of similarly to what yours is where I do when it comes to online I do like to work directly with the parents mm-hmm. um I do have some parents that request that I I do speak directly with the child and if it's a teenager then um you know, I, I will do some of that work, but I think if it's any younger than that, it's really challenging to do, um, mm-hmm. especially just with developmentally where the child is at. And, mm-hmm. you know, all you can really do online is is talk. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So with younger kids, a lot of times you have to be creative um, and you can't just sit and have, you know, a, a 50 minute conversation back and forth with them. You have to to use some other things to try and um, get the information you need or to try and teach them the skills that you want them to learn. Because uh, oftentimes I'm kicking a ball around in my office. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, they're throwing these little men up on the walls uh-huh. and they're falling <laughs> off. And, you know, like and you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just had a, a kid um, yesterday throwing cards all over the place. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's and it's a lot of fun because, I, I, and I'm gonna kind of get off topic here a little bit, but because I I think you're the first one that I've uh, I've done a guest interview spot on the podcast here that also works with kids, and my playful side is coming out because I know you can relate to that, and yep. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's just like you know we I often you know people will ask me like how does the process go, and I said you know like you can plan so much, but. There also has to be space for letting things unfold the way that they're going to. And I mean, that's the same as working with adults, but with kids, it's so much different because, you know, depending on where they're coming from, whether they're coming from home or they're coming from school, depending, you know, what's happened in that day, I don't necessarily know what they're going to be bringing to the table. Whereas with an adult, most times they can come in with that, okay, this is the issue that I'm going to work on. But right. With the young child, like if they had a bad experience at recess just prior to coming to my office, that is going to impact how our session is going to go. Absolutely. You know, for me, I I always tell people, and this was true um, when I was working in residential, when, you know, I'm in my private practice, um, I usually have about three things planned um, (laughs) or maybe like three different ways I'm going to approach something. And I also have in the back of my mind, I may have to scrap all of these mm-hmm. and, and go with whatever is being brought to me that day. So you have to definitely be very flexible um, mm-hmm. because if not, I think you're really going to have a difficult time making anything um, be productive or be successful because if the child's not in the same place you are, then, then it's really not going to be effective. 
Well, and they're usually not. And they're usually not in the you're same right. place as we are. <laughs> you're so, right. You're right. If you're the kind of professional therapist that likes things to kind of go fairly, you know, consistently, I don't know if working with children's the thing for you. And, <laughs> right. and that's okay because that is one of the things that I really enjoy about the work is, is I can into a therapeutic moment. <laughs> yep. Um, right. Like the game of trouble, for example, um, recently and this really just evolved in, in how the session went you know there's the bubble in the middle with mm-hmm. with the dice mm-hmm. and um the the youth was putting their cupping their hand on it and so but doing it and squinting their face and crunching their ears and everything was all <laughs> tight and I was like okay we could like you know create some breathing experiences here and so right it was yeah and so it just it turned into that and it was just so organic and it unfolded and it was beautiful and you know this was with a game of trouble that we were playing in the office and so yeah you have to know how to turn anything and so you're right we can't bring that and offer that while we're doing online sessions with with young people right yeah um absolutely and even with teenagers or adolescents i I do try to feel it out first to see if if they are in a place where they're able to have um, mm-hmm. just verbal discussion or if, if maybe this is somebody that would be better off to be seen in person. Yeah. So you have a physical space as well then. I do. You see the kids. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's the same as me. Yeah. Uh, and then you were talking a lot about the empowerment and the peace around supporting parents, especially those who have uh, fostered or um, adopted a child, because you're saying and we know that they're usually coming with some kind of trauma or difficult past experience. And maybe it wasn't trauma, but just no longer living with your biological family is sure. a difficult past experience. And, you know, we could even say trauma as well. And so the ill-equipped piece for the adoptive family was was interesting for me because uh, sometimes we just don't know what they've been through. Right. Or sometimes, and I, I really don't like saying this, but I think it's it's realistic, is the information isn't shared or passed on from the agencies. Right. And that unfortunately does happen, doesn't it? It does happen. And I've seen it a lot, especially with international adoptions. Mm. And, you know, families maybe will be adopted a child during infancy. And you, you know, think and I think assume and hope that because you're adopting them so young, that they will mm. develop in, in a healthy way. Um, however, unfortunately, with, with some of these international adoptions, these infants come from a place where there is some neglect there. Um, and that preverbal neglect can really do a lot to just the overall brain development. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the parents that I've worked with, and of course, I, I don't know for sure, but it seems like they, they aren't given that information up front about this could be a possibility. Yeah. Um, and it might not be, but definitely could. So just be aware. Yeah. And know. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. That's really hard for parents to, to see this child growing up and knowing from an early age that they have severe difficulties or there's a lot of attachment related difficulties and, and they just don't know what to do about it. And of course they also want their child to be developing you know, healthy and to have, um, you know, positive life experiences. So I think parents really struggle with, um, you know, just what to do and, and how to manage it. And also understanding when maybe it is 
too much. And yes. maybe when, you know, the child needs some additional services. Yeah, that actually is a really big piece. And not understanding the child development spectrum and continuum around what is a, what is a natural unfolding of maturity versus something that might be more troublesome or problematic that needs to be tended to. Right, right. Yeah. And so many times there's, um, you know, the parents feel like they are failing in some way mm-hmm. if the child needs services outside of the home um, mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of worst case scenario if the child isn't able to live in the home any longer. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guilt around that and there's a lot yeah. of um, failure around that. And then, of course, the parents can develop kind of their own difficulties um, that they need support with and, mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, work through that. Yeah, that I was going to ask you about that, actually, just that piece around, you know, working towards empowering parents, helping them with strategies and tools to manage, but also in, in those other instances where maybe it just, it, it needs to be tended to from, from the outside and how there is that internal, even what have I done wrong, a lot of the questioning, right. how did I contribute it to this? And it can bring up a lot of stuff for the adult, for the, for the caregiver and the parent too. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the parents often think that, that they failed in some way or, you know, they weren't um, a good parent because they weren't able to help the child through certain situations. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes families who are adopting, whether it's internationally or not, they're doing that possibly and maybe more likely because they can't have children of their own and they really, really want children. And so they have so much to offer and so much love and compassion and nurturance towards their, you know, wanting to give that to a young person and raise a young person. And then all of a sudden it's not going quite as they had thought it would go. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's very difficult. And it's also very difficult to hear that your child maybe does have a mental illness or that, you know, there are things um, going on with the child. That's, that's also a hard thing to hear and to come to terms with and to understand. Um, Because if we're talking about a child that, that does have mental illness, then likely that is going to be something that they're going to have to manage um, maybe for, for the Mm -hmm. rest of their lives. So that's a difficult thing too. Yeah. Yeah that they didn't realize was part of and that's the same whether we're adopting or we're having children naturally it it, sure you know I work as I'm sure you have worked with parents where especially in adolescent inpatient because Mm -hmm. of mental health and so sometimes there's that I I think it's prodromal there's the the potential for the budding of you know uh um, personality disorder or, or some other sort of, um, because they're not generally diagnosing and labeling with those diagnoses at the youth age, the age that we would see them in inpatient. But right. uh, I'm guessing where you were as well, there is a cutoff period where I was working, it was 18. So once they surpass their 18th birthday, they move on to the adult system. So we mm-hmm. never generally know the outcome of you know, was it a one-off or is it something that did develop into a full-blown mental illness? And um, yeah, so that can happen for for any parent that is uh, raising a child. But you're right, it is the shock of how do I manage this long-term potentially for the rest of their 
mine in their life, it's, it's shocking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very difficult and, and it's difficult to, I think, understand it and then try to figure out how to, to best support because you are going to have to rework what you thought that relationship was going to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a lot of processing for the individual around the hopes and the dreams that in that reworking process, there's emotions that need to be, that need to be, uh, not dealt with because I don't believe in dealing with emotions, but that just need to be acknowledged and felt and processed. Yes. Um, and I also think, you know, the adolescent years can be extremely challenging for a child that does have a diagnosable mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, cause a lot of times a, a teenager wants to be a teenager, mm-hmm. you know, a teenager doesn't want to think that they have something that, that they have to manage and that they have to mm-hmm. get treatment for. And they can even just be taking medication. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's this idea of, I want to be a, a normal kid. And of course, whatever that means or looks like. Um, but that can also mean that they may neglect their mental health a little bit, which could lead to other challenges. And, you know, they're just not at a point yet where they are able to accept um, mm-hmm. whatever they need to do. And then that can lead to, to other difficulties in the home too. And sometimes it gets far worse before it gets better, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when a, a mental illness is starting, when you see these symptoms start to come out, you don't really know exactly where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, you know, really seeing how it develops and then um, trying to figure out the best treatment approach to use. And that can take a while. Mm-hmm. All the while they're trying to, like you say, be a teen and live their life and do what right. teens do, hang out with friends. You know, they have yes. responsibilities at school. Maybe they have a job and, oh my yeah. gosh, it's just, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, if we can just flip things a little bit, you also mm-hmm. work with uh, those who have maybe been in the system but then are out on their own and um, dealing with the impacts of trauma in their lives and how they navigate future or current relationships as they're older. And yes. yeah, so related to their independence away from and beyond that. Um, I guess, as a young adult. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I have, you know, really over a decade of experience working within the child welfare system. um, And I do have my child welfare license um, here in Chicago. And I've worked a lot with young adults. um, And what it's like here for a lot of young adults is when you reach the age of 21, you're kicked out of the system. And for a lot of them, it really is like being pushed off a cliff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have so much support and there are many, many flaws with the child welfare system um, that I won't really get into, but Mm -hmm. they do always make sure that you have some kind of housing, always make sure that you have food, always make sure that, you know, you have your basic needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also a lack of preparing for adulthood. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times um, you're in the, the DCFS system because you probably went through some pretty awful things. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely trauma. There's no right. question. Yeah. Right. Um, and the adult system 
isn't the same as the child system. No. So that's the, the same here, Alicia. Okay. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. So the support that you get once you're an adult is very different. And that can be a really, really hard adjustment. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, one day you have all of the support around you, whether it's perfect or not. Like I said, there's a lot of mm-hmm. difficulties with the system. Um, but then once you turn 21 or it, sometimes 18, but you can go up mm-hmm. to 21 here in Illinois, um, mm-hmm. it really is like your birthday hits and, and that's yeah. it. You walk out the door and, and you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to figure out one relationships. Relationships are, are usually really difficult whenever you've gone through the system. Mm-hmm. Um, your support network, how to get a job, what you're going to, you know, what you want to do. Um, all of those things are really challenging. So I do work a lot with, with young adults and people um, beyond that as well who are really struggling with um, just being kind of released from the system and, mm-hmm. and the what comes next sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so could you speak a little bit to like when you say relationships and they're living on their own independently, are you talking with their peers? Or are you talking with you know family members? Or it's all of the above, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's all of the above. And something that I've seen throughout my time in child welfare is, unfortunately, around here, a lot of times when a child is younger, they there is separation from the family, mm-hmm. and in some cases for very good reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. In other cases, there may be positive family members that they should be connected to. But as the the children grow and and get into their teenage years or their young adult years, they almost always want to reach out and connect with that biological family. Mm -hmm. Um, And a part of what I do a lot is, is trying to figure out if you want that relationship, what that relationship is going to look like and making sure that they are aware of um, kind of boundary setting and Mm -hmm. um, some of the disappointments that may come from reconnecting. Mm -hmm. You know, you may have in your mind that you want your mom to be a certain way. And and Mm -hmm. if she's not that way, how do you manage that? And if you want her in your life, how do you have her in your life and also understand that she has difficulties too? Mm-hmm. And like you said, the boundaries piece, like how do you set the boundaries to what is acceptable and not acceptable for you? What do you value as your own person? Right. In terms, yeah. And, you know, recognizing what's important to you so that if someone is trying to breach or cross those boundaries and also how to be able to, maintain and and keep those boundaries because it can be very intense. Yes. Um, it can be very intense. And for uh, most people, I mean, we want, we want family connections, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes it's almost this idea of, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever it is. I feel like I need to do Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, somebody in my family needs help, I'm going to help them. If they need money, I'm going to give them money. If they want me to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, just to try and, and have that relationship. Yeah. It's almost from out of desperation to have that connection and that. Right. Cause I mean, yeah. it's pretty hard to be out there and, and mm-hmm. feel like you don't have anybody. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the uh, treatment styles that 
I know that you do is DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And right. so, right. And so I'm imagining in the support that you provide for these individuals that we're talking about that are moving and living independently, is that a lot of the, the work that you would be doing with them? Is that DBT work? Um, yes. Yeah, so I do a lot of DBT with anybody that has trouble with um, attachment, anybody that has kind of that trauma background. And mm-hmm. regardless of the age, I always use some of those techniques. And of course, it's not, you know, the appropriate approach for everybody, but mm-hmm. um, it is found to be very effective for, for people that do struggle with just interpersonal difficulties and relationships. Um, so there are four main components of DBT. There's the mindfulness, there's mm-hmm. emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and the interpersonal effectiveness. Um, so it really works on that emotional piece and the cognitive side too. But a lot of times um, people can get very emotionally flooded mm-hmm. where the emotions take over and they are just too much to manage. Um, and it just becomes overwhelming. So it's really working on how to um, manage those emotions, how to learn skills to be able to get through those difficult emotions, um, how to let the the rational side of your mind kind of kick in as well, um, and looking at what healthy relationships are and what they should be. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're getting triggered in a relationship, how to know how to work through it, or if it's something that maybe um, isn't a healthy relationship and, and you need to try and, and disconnect as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not trigger like abandonment issues. Right, and, right. Yeah, come, come at it from a place of understanding that it is something that with, with the tools and the strategies, the support that you can actually manage this dynamic and move through it or past it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is a lot of teaching different skills. And one thing that I think people sometimes um, struggle with is thinking that learning skills is going to take away the emotions or, or take away the difficulties. Um, and that likely isn't what's going to happen, but it's more so to give you tools to be able to get through it. Mm-hmm. So, well, and know that it's something that you can get through rather than right, it take right. over your whole body and your mind. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's not about not feeling at all, but it's about you know being able to get through whatever you are feeling and being able to, to just process it in, in an effective mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from an informed place rather than a an overwhelming reactionary, yeah. You know, and then <laughs> your body just takes over and all of a sudden, you know, things are happening yes. and you feel like your heart's racing and you have like how do you stop your heart heart from racing if you don't have the tools like mindfulness for example. Exactly, yes. It can be really scary. And it can be scary and and out of control and yeah, that then becomes like a cycle or, you know, just a repetitive pattern that happens for some individuals. Yeah. And then it's, you know, challenging after that because it may damage relationships and, Mm -hmm. you know, it just kind of can spiral. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is a good segue into the work that you also do with the oppositional defiance. You said that you do a lot of work with, um, now, I'm, I'm not, I, and that's the reason I cautioned and said, I don't know if this is a good segue, because I don't want to imply that people who 
uh, utilize DBT are oppositionally defiant. Uh, that is uh, a right. diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I said that. So, uh, an oppositional defiant disorder is a, is a formal diagnosis. Um, but I just, I, as we were talking about sort of that overwhelming, um, emotional emotions take over and then how it can have an impact on relationships. And it's this recurring pattern that, that has us spiraling. When we bring that back to the younger child that is dealing with those flooded emotions and the emotional dysregulation, uh, distress, intolerance, those kinds of things. Do you agree that it can sort of appear to be something like an oppositional defiance? I, I do agree with that. Yes. And yeah, oppositional defiant disorder is something that obviously I work with. And um, I do hesitate to formally give that diagnosis too much um, Mm -hmm. because it does have a a very, it can have a negative um, connotation to it. You know, people Mm -hmm. can assume certain things and it can absolutely be triggered by you know, different tra- traumatic experiences, different things that may be happening with them. Um, but basically all oppositional defiant disorder is, is a kid that has a hard time following directions. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a kid that can be very challenging and, and doesn't do what the adult wants them to do. Um, so yeah. And, and with, when it comes to that, that's an area that I also do a lot of work with the parents around. Um, right. Because it's, cause you don't want to get into that power struggle right. and then that become right. And nobody gets anything done or gets anywhere. And it just increasingly gets frustrating for everybody. Right. And you know, the, your, your kid that struggles with the oppositional defiant disorder, usually the parents are so, you know, just burnt out and, mm-hmm. and tired because it is a constant power struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have to be reworking the interactions with that kid and, and making sure to do things that are going to be effective. Um, Mm -hmm. And for so many, so many times it's, you know, if you have a young kid, you just want them to listen, right? Mm -hmm. I I Mm -hmm. say to do something, they should do it, Mm -hmm. which, okay, yes. And if it's not working, then we need to figure out another way to approach it to, to get Mm -hmm. the results that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which there's um, that building that relationship. So if it's something that can have another, I'm just trying to think of a scenario where, you know, Johnny wants to wear the same pants to school without washing them for two weeks, right? <laughs> you know, like, is is Johnny really going to be harmed? You right. know, maybe peers will start to say something if the pants start to smell. I'm literally just... making this up as I go. Um, But that's the reworking piece is, you know, that people say, pick your battles. That's understanding that if we ask Johnny to take those, those pants off and clean them and Johnny consistently says no, rather than continuing to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. um, really just, I, you know, and you can do it a bunch of different ways, but one way is take that step back and give space for Johnny to just, you know, because preserve the relationship, I think, around what the child maybe is asking for, which is a little bit of space about autonomy and, oh, no, I right. like these pants. Right, yeah. Because then it creates another experience rather than that one that we know, which is the power struggle or that they know <laughs> is the power struggle. Right. Um, and 
with with somebody that struggles with that too, a lot of times um, giving choices with things. So, yes. you know, you, you might want them to do something where, um, you know, let's say you're talking about chores and you're trying to get them to clean their room and it's this back and forth. They're not going to clean their room. Well, if you instead just say something like, okay, would you rather clean your room right now or take out the garbage right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're more likely to choose an option mm-hmm. rather than go along with something that they're directly told to do. Right. And of course, yeah. the options have to be things that um, aren't going to compromise, you know, your parenting too much or, you right. know, are, are still going to be effective outcomes that you want. But that mm-hmm. direct do this doesn't really work or the direct no, you can't doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and even just when you said compromising your parenting, a- acknowledging that for those who are having a f- hard time following directions and parents being really tired and burnt out from from being with that child, the compromising your parenting doesn't mean hands up, forget it. You know, we're not right. going to make Johnny do anything. Right. Yep. <laughs> That's what I heard you say when you said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you're in a place where you feel like you're just banging your head against the wall over and over and over again, well, then try something different. <laughs> Yeah, that's not working. That's a good indication. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I I like to say, because people understand, you know, if I have a, if I'm feeling hot, then maybe I have a fever and that's a symptom to something going on. You Mm -hmm. know, there's something brewing, I'm getting sick. So yeah, if you're feeling like you're ready to toss your hands up, that is a good indication or a symptom that, you know what, whatever we're doing here is not working and we need to rework that and try something different. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting too, because here in Ontario, Canada, as a psychotherapist or even a social worker, we can't diagnose here. Oh, you can't. Uh, okay. No, no. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that earlier and that was something I was aware of is uh, as counselors and social workers and in the States usually can, if not all the time, yeah, most times. Yeah. Um, and actually we are, we're required to give a diagnosis um, for the insurance. Yep. Yeah. And that's different here too. The insurance setup and everything is different here too. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's way different. You know, I think is, has its pros and cons, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it is good to be able to diagnose. So that way you can put a name to things and, and the, the parents and the child can start to understand what it is. And mm-hmm. it's good that you can also then communicate with other providers in that way so they know um, what, the, mm-hmm. what the child is struggling with. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you mentioned insurance companies. So I have to diagnose day one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we have to put a diagnosis down after our first session with somebody, which seems a little premature sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it often does take a couple of times, um, if not even mm-hmm. longer to really yeah. figure out what, what you're seeing, what the symptoms are, you know, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, pros and cons to, to being able to diagnose and, and just the way that the system is around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've got some thoughts about which I don't want to get into because I feel like that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, you know, just that idea of um, 
how to manage or navigate that, you know, getting that diagnosis and then what that means for the family. Right. And yeah, so we'll have to touch base on that. But uh, so Alicia, we're getting close to the end of our time okay. here. And I wanted to know if you could share for the listeners how it is that people, if they're interested in chatting with you or working with you online, how it is that they could get a hold of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me a couple of different ways. You can find me through Psychology Today. Um, mm-hmm. And my na- it's just my name, Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, Bradley, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. Um, mm-hmm. And as we've been mentioning, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. I, I also have... Uh, a posting with open path. Okay. Um, so that's a directory that I use to do more of the, um, online counseling. Okay. Um, and then my group practice, it is called Terry Hefter associates, um, which is located. That links on the psychology today, I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a couple of different ways to find me, or you can just do a general Google search and, and my name should come up. Awesome. That's wonderful. Well, it's been fantastic connecting with another therapist that works with kids. I, like I said, my playful side comes out and I could go on and on and on, but right. uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for providing us with your perspective and with your knowledge and experience today. And it was really great chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for letting me join you. Great. Take care, Alicia. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today. Please remember that information provided in this podcast is not therapy and is not a substitute for receiving help from a licensed or regulated healthcare professional. For more information on this episode and links discussed here today, please see the show notes. Please also visit my website, which includes more resources and social media links, as well as ways of getting in touch with me at julieclarktherapy.com.